for joining us for the next Speaking Out on Pain Management podcast. This series is, a bro- is broken down into multiple topic areas, such as speaking, such as implementing pain contracts, pain assessments, non-opioid approaches to pain management techniques, care coordination, and more. There are several things that we want you to better understand and be able to share with your colleagues after you've participated in these podcasts. We want you to get a basic understanding of the opioid crisis and how it affects the healthcare delivery system and the clinicians in your organization. So you have a better sense of where you fit into the solution. Most importantly, we want to provide our listeners with tips to resources that can take that you can take back to your workplace for the management of chronic pain with regards to opioids. I am Sandy Swallow, your host for this session and a program specialist at Telligen. Telligen is the Quality Innovation Network, Quality Improvement Organization for Colorado, Illinois, and Iowa. The topic for today's discussion discussion is care coordination between providers when prescribing controlled substances such as opioids. The CDC and many other sources have excellent guidelines for prescribing opioids. Today we want to discuss the communication disconnect that can happen between prescribers, the patients, and other providers caring for that person. I have the pleasure of three clinical pharmacists of various backgrounds with me today to share their tips on effective patient-centered communication when prescribing these medications. Our first panelist today is Craig Lobman. Craig is a clinical pharmacist with Unity Point Clinics. He graduated with, <clears throat> with his bachelor's degree in pharmacy from the University of Iowa and his PharmD degree from the University of Minnesota. He was an assistant professor of pharmacy at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy for nine years. He currently provides patient care services at two family medicine clinics in the Des Moines area. Craig's interests include anticoagulation, diabetes, and geriatric medicine. He also he is also the past president of the Iowa Pharmacy Association. Our second panelist is Brett Singh. Brett graduated from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy in 2007 and completed a postgraduate residency at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics. He has practiced in the emergency department as an EM clinical pharmacy specialist since 2008 and is currently the program director of the postgraduates in emergency medicine at UIHC. Brett also serves as a clinical assistant professor at UI College of Pharmacy and College of Medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine and serves as the chair of the Iowa Medicaid Drug Utilization Review. Next is Jarek Vetter. Jarek obtained his doctorate of pharmacy from Creighton University in 2010. He is a certified compounding specialist by Professional Compounding Centers of America. Jarek has practice in the Broadlands Medical Center's Pain Management Center since 2015. He collaborates with providers to find the best treatment options to help manage chronic pain. In addition, Jarek is currently an adjunct assistant professor at Drake University. So welcome and thank you for your willingness to share your perspective and views on some very significant concerns that we face in a sometimes disconnected health system. Our discussion today includes three questions for these providers. The first question is for Craig. Can you identify potential hurdles prescribers have to deal with when prescribing controlled substances such as opioids? Thanks, Sandy, for your introduction. And as background, again, I've worked in a variety of different family medicine clinics over this past 23 years. 
And I know that treating chronic pain is often very time-consuming and clinically challenging for most primary care physicians. I think first, one of the major hurdles would be some of the administrative burdens with um, prescribing controlled substances. Um, so I know, for example, when we write controlled prescriptions and especially C2 medications, our clinic system is still printing out paper copies of those uh, prescriptions. And this often creates extra work for our staff and patients, especially if a refill is needed, um, extra steps of documentation at the front desk and other things that need to happen for that patient to get a printed copy of their C2 medication. And I know to prevent this that some clinics have started implementing electronic prescribing of C2s, which is something that's been made available to us, but not all clinics have gone that direction yet just because of the cost to implement um, the double authentication process needed to um, fulfill the laws regarding C2 prescriptions. Um, I know state and federal mandates will push us harder um, to make clinic systems implement this, and hopefully this will alleviate some of the administrative burdens. I think the other administrative burden would be the establishment and ongoing management of pain contracts. I truly believe pain contracts are an important thing for protecting the integrity of our system, um, but it does require extra time and um, to prepare and review those contracts over time. Another often hurdle would be accessing and viewing the PMP data for our clinic patients. Again, I believe PMP is a very important step in the process to safeguard the appropriate use and <clears throat> preventing misuse or diversion of these medications. Um, so hopefully over time there can be quicker ways within the electronic health record to access the PMP or it can be brought into our electronic health records seamlessly um, with fewer sign-on codes. So I think those would be administrative hurdles. Some of the other challenges would be more clinical things. Um, I know here in our Des Moines market, we just don't have enough pain specialists to see all of the chronic pain patients. So often our family medicine providers are taking on some fairly complex pain patients that they may not have all of the tools and skills to adequately treat. Um, and other things that pop up, such as tolerance to medications or side effects and how to manage those patients. So I think just an important process would be just having resources available for those primary care doctors. So um, appreciate efforts like what Telogen is doing and the CDC and other national groups to help provide um, quick resources for our primary care providers. And then finally, I think a big issue comes up when we do our pain contracts, we often require a urine drug screen. So that can become difficult to interpret at times, to know how to interpret and analyze the final results of urine drug screens. And um, so it sometimes does prompt questions. Are there different drugs that um, could interfere with the interpretation of the results? So I think a uh, a final solution would be 
um, for our providers just to have a network of experts that they can rely on for questions like that, um, utilizing their local pharmacist, or if it's a lab personnel or other um, just people in their region that are experts just to be able to call and ask for support. So I think those would be things that I would think of Sandy in this area. Well, very good. Thank you. Those are some excellent, excellent points. Um, I want to open this up for Brett and Jerry, um, if they have anything to add in regards to the potential hurdles um, that they're recognizing in their organizations or anything they'd like to add to um, Craig's discussion. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll start here. This is Jerick. Uh, I, I do have uh, my providers in the pain clinic do have uh, access to do the electronic prescribing for controlled substances. We have seen that that's been uh, a, a lot um, a lot easier initially. Uh, it, it avoids that that need for that hard copy, and it, it does speed the process up a little bit. Um, so I know that there is a pretty big uh, cost associated with that too, though, and so there's there is uh, um, just a, a short, a small number of providers here that do have access to um, send those electronic prescriptions over. So initially, uh, there's just a few providers. We're going to kind of see how it works, and if it does uh, speed up um, the process for everybody, it, it might be a little bit more of a, a company-wide sweeping change after. But um, definitely, cost is an, uh, an issue currently with. Um, with the electronic prescribing. And then uh, um, the only other thing I'd like to tag on to is uh, the, the urine drug screen uh, comment. Uh, it is absolutely very difficult to interpret some of those results. Um, we're lucky that uh, um, we actually send our labs out and we have uh, um, a group that uh, um, any, any result that comes back that would um, be a reason to discharge a patient if they drop positive for something that they're not supposed to have in their system or something along those those lines, we're able to call the clinical toxicologist and they can really talk through us um, just to make sure that we're making the right decision. There are times where um, oxycodone might have a small amount of, of hydrocodone powder on it just from the manufacturer itself. And so um, sometimes it can, it can have a positive um, urine drug screen for a substance that they're not supposed to have when really it's um, actually a manufacturing issue, and, and the clinical um, toxicologists are able to talk us through some of those levels. So I do encourage um, any time that we have any urine drug screen that seems um, off to, to get that ex another expert involved and make sure that we really have a good understanding of what's going on. Some excellent points. I think what I'm hearing you say, maybe a suggestion for our listeners would be if they are not already implementing the C2 medications through the electronic prescribing, maybe to start with like a pilot group of clinicians, maybe one or two or three, depending on the size of their organization, and just work through the kinks, work through the costs, and see if it if it is um, cost effective for them. Absolutely, yeah. Great, great suggestion. Um, Brett, any any comments from you on this topic? No, I I um I think they hit some really high points there. And, and, you know, just to pile on with the electronic prescribing, the University of Iowa is, is going towards that as well. And I believe that the state of Iowa has actually implemented a law that's going to require that. I can't remember when that has to take effect. It would be by January 2020 is the current rules. 
Very good. Very good. Well, I want to move on to our second question. Um, I'll start with Brett. With your history as an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist, could you discuss issues regarding the treatment of opioid disorders in the emergency department and coordination of care after the patient is discharged from the ER? So, like, who follows the patient that is prescribed medication, medications that are used to treat the opioid dependence or addiction, such as Suboxone or Methadone? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, thanks, Sandy, again for having us today. Um, so, there's a, there's about um, four things that I kind of want to touch on here when we're looking at um, the coordination and the treatment of these patients when they come into the emergency department. And I think if we, you know, first highlight is what we want to do is identify these patients and, and improve our screening for these patients. In years past, I think people were a little bit reluctant when I've been speaking with my emergency medicine providers. When they were trying to identify these patients, it was difficult because we didn't really have um, any treatment options. We didn't have any coordination so I think that's where the reluctance was to even ask if if patients wanted treatment versus, you know, it was very easy to ask if somebody, you know, was um, looking for help with, like, alcohol um, treatment and so forth. So I think as, you know, the opioid epidemic has kind of taken off here, we've done a better job of trying to identify and screen for these patients. And then the second um, part of that is the emergency medicine providers can play a significant role in starting these patients on treatment, um, but people, I don't think it was um, clear on how, how we could do that and what you need to do that to initiate treatment in the, in the emergency department or for any provider to do that is you need to take the, um, clear the waiver so you can provide a buprenorphine or suboxone or methadone and get the XDEA number. And really all that uh, entails is an eight-hour online course. So it's not hard to um, obtain that waiver. And what we're seeing is a significant number of ED providers across the nation are starting to do that online course. We're seeing um, multiple uh, providers at our institution are also signing up for that course so they can start these patients on treatment um, and get them um, initiated when they present to the emergency department. So that leads into the next thing. We can initiate a treatment, but if the patient can't um, obtain the treatment from their insurance company or they can't afford to pay for it uh, out of pocket, that becomes a problem. So um, being on the you know Medicaid board, this is, has come up frequently in the last uh, three years or so, and that's, uh, you know, what kind of coverage is, are, is Medicaid going to provide for Suboxone, which seems to be kind of the go-to treatments right now. Um, and so what we're seeing is, is a big shift in in how Medicaid is, is providing that for patients. You know, if you look back three to four years ago, there was a, a lot of um, prior authorization um, requirements that had to be met. It was, it was heavily restricted. And what we're seeing states across the nation, again, we're seeing that the Medicaid are, are uh, removing these restrictions, and some states are actually pulling prior authorization off of Suboxone completely. Now, here in the state of Iowa, we're not, we haven't completely removed all the prior authorization restrictions, but we have made it 
made the process much uh, uh, simpler to uh, so that the, the patients and providers can get the the patient um, suboxone um, if needed. And then the fourth thing that we we have to think about is we can get the patient the medication, we can get them started uh, on treatment in the ED. Um, is what do we do with these patients when they leave the emergency department? And so that's where the coordination part comes in. And here at the University of Iowa, we have set up um, some clinics. Uh, we're working with uh, some family practice providers who are are specializing in in opioid um, uh, detoxification and follow up. So what they're doing is we have a kind of a direct line to those patients. We'll initiate the therapy in the emergency department. We have Suboxone um, readily available. And then they have, they can get in the clinic within usually, you know, two to three days or so. And that, that's the key here is we want to make sure that we close that, you know, close that communication there and get these patients into that clinic. I think one of the things that, you know, we could do better at here at the University of Iowa or just in general, I'm, I'm assuming across the nation, is just have, make sure that these clinics have like emergency openings. Um, so they can handle kind of an influx of patients as needed. I know that's one thing that we're kind of working up for here. And, you know, this is out on the East Coast. They've really figured this out, and they have a really good system down. So we're trying to catch up and, and improve, improve how we, t you know, take care of patients here. So those are really, you know, kind of the four things, you know, that kind of starts with the identification of patients and then, you know, you kind of finish with the coordination of care and making sure that we're not just sending them out and that they have good follow-up because, you know, it doesn't doesn't do any good for these patients if we just start them on Suboxone and they don't have any follow-up. So that's kind of the spectrum of, of what we're trying to accomplish um, in the emergency department when we see those patients. Those are excellent points, too, especially when we talk about you know, Craig um, referenced too that a lot of the family uh, medicine practitioners don't feel comfortable treating those complex patients, but you guys have done a great job of identifying family medicine docs that are willing to specialize in this a little bit and be able to handle that follow-up. Um, that's a great tip for other organizations. Um, I'm going to open it up again for um, Jerry and Craig if you have any comments um, or any um, other discussion regarding on the emergency medicine follow-up for patients. I think Brett did a great job of explaining some of the hurdles. And I think just thinking about where we're at as a country, just better understanding opioid addiction, and um, it certainly hit the press a lot in terms of the number of deaths and how can we prevent um, ongoing epidemic that we're facing. So, you know, I think as healthcare professionals, the more that we can be a part of advocacy in this area and just having discussions at the community level. So I know some of our work with the Iowa Pharmacy Association, um, just traveling to different regions to pull together people to talk through um, what are ways to improve access for things like naloxone, suboxone, um, just to make people aware in the communities, and then as well, just from a legislative standpoint too, um, all of these things require money, and um, so sometimes you do have to 
advocate for better treatment options and availability of these things um, just to help our vulnerable population uh, to prevent further deaths and other complications uh, from this addiction disorder. So those would be things that I would add. Thank you. And just my, my quick two cents, all those are, are excellent topics, the, uh, excellent points. I would only add that uh, I know that the Iowa Department of Public Health does list off on their website. They have a reference for um, different organizations that do have medication-assisted treatment and um, addiction um, programs in the area. So you can always, for Iowa, you can always refer to that to find something that's local for you if, if there's not um, – something that your clinic would provide or something along those lines. Well, that's, that is great to know. And I think, um, as everyone knows, this podcast is being recorded, and I will have some resources that will attach with this recording, and I will um, list the um, website for the Iowa Department of Public Health for that. And, um, Brett, I may look to you to give me information a little bit more on that eight-hour online course for the emergency room providers, too, to add for our resources with this podcast. Great. Um, I'm going to – next I would like to touch on another important area today. Derek, what suggestions do you have for clinicians on educating their patients on proper storage of medication at home and proper ways to dispose of medications? Yeah, so we uh, we do have uh, – prescribers here that do uh, so pain management where we do have medication um, opioid treatment and so um, we do try to make sure that there's um, additional education going to those patients who um, who are going home with opioids so we do talk to them about um, making sure that they keep their medication safe at home um, I, I did notice uh, one stat that uh, roughly 70% of opioids are not stored safely out of reach of, of children right now so um, majority of people at home are not keeping their medications in, in a safe place. Um, there's uh, one thing that I'd heard from a DEA officer once, that if someone's breaking into your home and they're looking for medicine, they look in the kitchen, they look in the cabinet above the sink in the bathroom, and the nightstand next to the bed. So to be honest, the majority of people that I talk to, they're either keeping it in one of those three spots or, or they have a lockbox because their medications have been stolen from them already. So after they talk to me, I normally suggest keeping it in a lockbox the best they can away from kids and pets um, in the original container, uh, making sure that it's sealed, um, just kind of walking them through step by step. We also give them a handout um, that has those informations just uh, just so that they can make sure that they take that uh, information home and really have a, a reiteration of what we discussed in the clinic. Um, the other point we'd like to talk, uh, touch base on with them is properly getting rid of those medicines. So opioids, we, we want to make sure that uh, after after surgeries and things like that, a lot of times people don't use the full amount of, of their medication and they're sitting on their, on their shelf at home. Um, a lot of people will be looking for those medications and um, it could be a friend or relative that's, that's taken it out of, out of a home of, of an unused medication. And so making sure that when the they're done with the medicine, the, the proper way of getting rid of it. Now, in Iowa, every county does have a, um, a, a proper disposal site. Um, our pharmacy here does have a disposal unit that any controlled substance or, um, or non-controlled substance can be thrown away in it. 
Um, it's taken away by the state. Um, the other thing they can do is, is throw it in the regular trash. They can just put it in some uh, coffee grounds or kitty litter, something that no one wants to dig through once it's going in that in that trash can. Um, now, fentanyl patches are a little bit different because those still actually are supposed to be flushed down the toilet just to make sure that that sticky substance isn't uh, um, in the trash and then potentially a, a pet or small child um, picking it up from that. But um, for the most part, we're just trying to make sure that uh, people know a appropriate way to get rid of their medication when when they're all said and done with it or if they switch to something different or they um, develop some type of a side effect with it, um, knowing what they can do to, to make sure that it's um, safe for their family and, and off the streets. Very good. I'm going to open up this question for comments from Brett or Craig if they have anything they'd like to contribute. I probably just have a couple things. Um, you know, I think at least here in the state of Iowa, pharmacists have the ability, if a C2 medication is prescribed and the quantity seems excessive, the patient could request a partial fill. So if there are 60 tablets after a minor surgery and the patient realizes 60 is excessive, there is the ability to do a partial fill. Um, so that would be one way of trying to minimize the number of opioids that are available in the home. And then obviously, too, there's the DEA take-back days. So there's different websites. People both in the spring and fall can go to different areas, um, another way for some of the different communities to bring back um, expired or unused um, narcotics or other C2 medications. Great tips, too. Okay. Um, what I think, Derek, I think what I hear you saying to our listeners is to have a call to action in your organization to be part of the solution for proper medication storage and disposal of prescription medications. Now, you said something about you had a handout that you gave to patients. Yeah, and I would be Did I understand to... it? Yeah, and I'd be more than happy to uh, uh, send kind of what we, we put across. Now, I know that the Iowa Department of Public Health also has a similar document, but I think it's always um, pretty common for someone, if you if you tell them something and, and send them home, there's a lot of times that information gets lost. So um, giving them a handout so that they can really um, refer back to that information and make sure they have a full understanding, I think it's always going to make sure that there's uh, um, more action taking place. So, yeah, I'm more than happy to send uh, kind of the, the information that we have on, on proper disposal and storage of medication um, just so that no one has to recreate the wheel. You can you can kind of get something going from that. Um, but, yeah, we have had a lot of success of people getting rid of those home medications that uh, they're no longer using or um, making sure that they're keeping them in a safe spot at home as well. I would, I would love to have your hand out, and then we'll connect that again with our website. Uh, for folks to just be able to um, print that off. Okay. Um, well, unfortunately, this is all the time we have today. I want to thank you all for a wonderful discussion. I think we could have gone on for much longer. Um, I certainly have been enlightened about the hurdles that prescribers face with electronic health records and accessing the prescription drug monitoring pro program. We also appreciate the tips for care coordination that needs to happen between the emergency department and the patient's primary providers. 
when they are prescribed opioids or with assisting a patient through treatment of possible misuse. As I wrap up, I would like to give our panelists, Craig Logeman, Brett Saint, and Jerry Fetter, a big round of applause, and thank you for your willingness to sh spend some time sharing your views and expertise on tips providers can use to better communicate with each other and their patients to create a safer, healthier delivery system. All of your contributions have been very beneficial, and they really can help give our listeners some perspective on better communication and coordination of care for patients. You folks out there, be sure to join us for the remaining podcast focused on pain management. For more information about pain management and opioids, you can visit Telligence website at www.telligenceclinqio.com. You can also stay up to date on health-related news, workshops, and webinars by following Telligent Quinn on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you.